Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of IBD Heal, a podcast brought to you by High Carb Health. I'm your host Shakul and today we have an extra special episode. We have got the co-producer of the brand new documentary Milked which will go live on the 18th of March on a platform called Water Bear. I highly recommend you watch this film, it's very very good and uh, they've really done a great job explaining the ins and outs of the dairy industry from a health perspective, from an ethics perspective, from an environmental perspective, really goes in detail and explains what the truth is about how the dairy industry works uh, in New Zealand. And uh, it's extra special for us at High Carb Health because um, I'm very humble to let you know that they uh, featured me in the film, which is super exciting and um, kind of Interesting to see yourself on screen, but um, yeah, there we were. I was interviewed in the nutrition aspect of the film, and um, yeah, very excited um, to be involved in the project. So I'm not going to talk for too long because we want to get into the interview. But first, I'm going to show you the trailer and a little sneak peek of part of my interview from the film, and then we will get into discussing all about milked with uh, Christopher Wai who, as I said, is the co-producer of the movie. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, guys. Take care. Dairy was a normal part of life growing up in New Zealand. I started the day with milk on my wheat and never thought twice about it. So it's been a journey coming to understand that milk isn't the wholesome product we're led to believe it is. not beneficial, not required, associated with lots of diseases. New Zealand's like your beautiful friend that's just got cancer. I didn't know any of this. People are dying, and it's all for the sake of making money. This industry is not working for anyone. We've gone down industrial agriculture big time, and we've got industrial-sized emissions. Farmers, but the system that they're caught up in is totally flawed. And looking back, it's like, well, we were duped. You guys are going up against the biggest industry in the entire country. I never considered that my life could be threatened by exposing this industry. Oh, that's when it really, truly hits you what's going on. Industrial dairying is this country's biggest polluter. They are the most inefficient food production system on the planet. There must be an alternative. We need a whole new way of thinking. Do you think we're putting our future food security at risk? I don't want to that. It's incredibly powerful and it's incredibly devious. Zealand, five million cows are a lot more important than five million people. Water is going to be the next gold, and if we don't look after the water, then all of us will perish. The dairy industry are just shuffling the chairs on the Titanic, and we need a new boat. If you consider we're on this little ball, this little beautiful planet of ours, we have a choice as to what sort of impact we're going to make. In fact, what we see is that the countries that eat the highest amounts of calcium have the highest rates of hip fractures and osteoporosis. 
A New Zealand-based study clearly shows there's no evidence that increasing calcium from dietary sources prevents fractures. Yet, that's what most health professionals are still telling us. I think it would be very, very beneficial for society as a whole if doctors were trained in nutrition, but they're not. Uh, they get very limited amounts of nutrition training. So basically what they teach is what's the popular opinion. The main issue is that the majority of the world's population cannot digest the lactose in milk. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of IBD Heal. And this is a podcast brought to you by High Carb Health. And today's guest is a good friend of ours, Chris Hurwai, who is the co-producer of the new documentary, Milked. Welcome to the show, mate. Kia ora Shakul, thanks for having me. Fantastic. Now, I'm very, very uh, grateful to have you here, Chris. And I'm also grateful for you uh, giving me the opportunity to be part of the project, which is obviously very exciting and uh, something that's close to our heart when it comes to health and, and mm. you know, how dairy products get into, you know, people's lives and how we're conditioned to believing they're healthy for us. But, you know, um, just to start off with, tell us a little bit about Milked, what the documentary is and, and what you're trying to achieve with it. And then we'll kind of get into where, you, where this all started for you. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I really love what you and your brother are doing with High Carb Health. Um, I'm always sending people your way. I think you guys give amazing advice. And yeah, so I love what you two are doing as well. Um, yeah, okay. So Milked is a documentary about the dairy industry here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It takes a real local look uh, at the issue, but it is a global problem as well. And so what we tried to do is kind of add that local flavor, that local eye, but within the context of a, of a global issue. Um, my background, I suppose, in terms of what got me interested in this, um, I grew up a rural lifestyle. Um, I used to go down to my local awa, my river, very often, pretty much lived down there, you know, as my source of free recreation. Um, it was my playground, essentially, my local river. Uh, and uh, my desire to protect that river and and waterways like it is, is a big motivation for me in terms of um, this film, because I think to myself about how important that waterway was for me growing up. And then when I found out about the statistics about waterways in New Zealand and how polluted they are, uh, it just made me think about uh, other kids or other people, doesn't matter what age you are, and their lack of ability to have that kind of free recreational space, that kind of spiritual enriching um, relationship with the environment. Um, one of my fears, really, moving into the future, is that the more polluted our environment becomes, the less chance people have to build a relationship with the natural world. And, you know, how are we going to have advocates and, you know, environmentalists and protectors of the environment if we're unable to have these free recreational spaces for our people to connect um, with the natural world? So, uh, I'm obviously um, a big proponent and advocate for animal rights and vegan veganism in general. So that's also a huge driver for me as well, trying to find pathways um, to talk about animals and you know, considering um, that they are like us sentient creatures and have interests in their own lives. And so um, this documentary as well, it's not just about the environment, um, there's also aspects of animal rights, but of course, we also touch on the, like you said, the impacts of dairy on our own health. Uh, and we like to think that we brought in a diversity of aspects 
um, about the dairy industry and the ways that it's kind of like, you know, blowing out negatively into all sorts of various different spaces. And so we hope that within this documentary, there's a little bit of something for everybody. Uh, and also um, that all the different advocates and activists and people being really vocal in these different spaces are able to come together on this topic about industrial dairy farming so that we can have uh, a kaupapa initiative for us to work together on because there's so many you know i think we're quite fractured um, unfortunately a lot of activists and social justice movements but the dairy industry i would say is one aspect of our society that's really just negatively affecting everything and so hopefully this film kind of brings us all a little, little bit together uh, a little bit more so that we can find solutions together absolutely i think that's one of the things you know really important word there you've raised and i think We'll talk about that, you know, as we get to the end of the conversation around the solutions and what we can do moving forward. Mm -hmm. uh, but mm -hmm. let's talk about the dairy industry in and of itself. You know, a lot of people don't understand how it works, what it is. All they see is when they go to the supermarket, the bottles on the shelves, and that's all they know of the dairy industry. And obviously that, you know, cows get milked and they see some of the, uh, mm. the images, you know, the happy farms and, and, you know, the farmers putting them, the milks on milking tools on the teats and things like that so you know yeah. it, it all looks nice and, you know, bright sunny mm. days and you know everything looks clean and things like that so uh you know why don't we actually discuss because you've obviously spent a lot of time studying the dairy industry and understanding what goes on behind the scenes not what they want to show you on their marketing mm. kind of propaganda let's mm. kind of understand what what happens in the dairy industry for people that aren't really aware yeah Jeez, yeah, I, I kind of always brush over it, you know, because this has been a big part of my life for a long time. And so I forget that, you know, a lot of people don't know that a cow needs to be impregnated before she can produce milk. You know, people just think they're milk machines, you know, um, and that's just, just classic capitalism, right? The consumer being disconnected from the producer. And also, you know, we, we have farmers who are disconnected from um, this 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 chain as well farmers don't have to deal with the slaughterhouse for example um they don't have to deal with you know where a lot of imported fertilizer and feed is coming from which our industrial system relies upon um, and so just just to give some people some basics um, we have more dairy cows here in Aotearoa than we do human beings you know and so that's not including beef cattle even you know and considering that dairy cows have uh, something like a, a 14 times effluent equivalency in comparison to an adult human being the fact that we have more dairy cows than we do humans uh, illustrates the environmental issue of having that amount of effluent that amount of waste produced by these animals uh, which unfortunately ends up in our environment and is a cost yeah. that is in fact externalized from the industry. They don't have to pay for these cleanup costs. Often it's usually passed on to us, the taxpayers. Um, yeah, so what, what you're saying there is that one dairy cow produces the same amount of waste as 14 humans. Is that, is that right? Is that what? That's my, that's my understanding. And I've had some people tell me that that is a low estimate. It sometimes right. goes as high as, you know, from like say eight to maybe 18 in terms of um, the equivalent waste of an adult human to a, a dairy cow. Yeah. Um, and what a lot of people don't know is that we have lost a lot of our natural environmental, uh, you know, our, our, our ecosystem's natural way of filtering this water. Mm -hmm. um, the last stat that I looked at in terms of wetlands that we've lost. And we should look at wetlands as the kind of kidneys of our ecosystem. When, it, when there's any water uh, anywhere, 
before it reaches a main water body, like a lake or the ocean or even a river, it, it normally passes through a wetland system, which is, you know, where you see a lot of the reeds and ducks and pukeko and, uh, you know, a wetland system. And we've lost around 90% of these, of these landscapes. And so considering we have as many dairy cows as we do in the amount of waste that they produce, the fact that our environment has also lost its natural way of filtering these nutrients out of, say, contaminated water through farm yeah. runoff, through milk shed um, cleaning and whatnot, uh, our waterways are really struggling in terms of being able to protect themselves through but hold on, don't the farmers don't the farmers need to manage how they look after this waste isn't that something that's told to us that no no, no yeah. you know we've got all these processes in place so the waste doesn't get into our natural environment yeah so you know we've got the dairy industry talking about fencing of waterways something around 90 percent of fences or so 98 i think of, of waterways are fenced, but that stops the cows themselves getting into the waterways, but it doesn't stop nutrients from the farm running off into waterways when it rains or uh, nutrients that seep through the soil and then travel laterally into our aquifers and other waterways. Uh, mm. We have riparian planting, which is planting, you know, things like harakeke, flax and other native plants around waterways to give them somewhat of a defense system to capture um, nitrogen and whatnot. But uh, the amount of nitrogen that those plants and those riparian systems soak up, it doesn't match the amount of nutrients that is going into the land from the cows, from the fertilizer. And so these are kind of positive things that farmers can talk about, uh, and they do. And I would say even for farmers themselves, they really believe these systems, these preventative measures are adequate uh, and I really kind of take my hat off to these farmers who are doing their best in terms of following through with recommendations from their own industry to protect waterways. But unfortunately, from the science that we've read, it's just not adequate. Uh, for example, they only have to fence certain waterways that have been defined by the industry as a waterway. Uh, and it leaves out a lot of the smaller streams which don't meet that criteria. But from the, the research that I've seen, it's these smaller streams that don't match the criteria of the industry that actually have the bulk of nutrients that cause harm mm. to our waterways from mm. nitrogen and phosphorus. So there are all sorts yeah. of things set up by the industry to make uh, the industry more sustainable. But unfortunately, the amount of intensification, the amount of cows that we've got on the land is just not adequate for the amount of damage that this okay, industry so one causes. Big, one big thing about the dairy industry is that there's just a lot of animals which are causing mm. a lot of environmental damage to our natural environment. Uh, and you mentioned, mm. you know, people, you know, going back to that whole idea that people don't really understand what it takes to operate the dairy industry. I really want to drill down into that just on a basic level. So, the, um, you know, we get to the you know from the beginning point the cow needs to be impregnated uh to start producing milk like every other mammal you need to have a baby to produce milk and who's that milk for mm. all right it's, yeah it's, it's for the baby cow all right so exactly. what happens to the cows yeah. what happens to the baby cows oh um yeah a lot of people think that cows produce milk for us you know you ask a kid oh where does milk come from they say oh from a cow uh, but they don't realize that that cow produces that milk for her baby. Um, mm. This milk was never designed for humans. 
it was designed for that for that cow's offspring that cow's baby um and so you know humans being as kind of ugh, exploitative and clever as we are we decided hey we'll take that baby away from that mother uh and um we'll use that those um nutrients for ourselves uh uh, to, to a very deleterious effect, I would say, in terms of um, our current uh, intake of dairy products, which is far too high, far too high. Mm. Um, and, you know, these are, these are um, animals that have been domesticated, uh, animals that normally live uh, a very kind of expansive, diverse lifestyle out in the wild, but now we've, we've restricted them to live in these pens, essentially, you know, with pasture-based systems on grass. But uh, normally these, these animals, if they were in the wild, they would be roaming huge, huge landscapes. Um, but now we've got them just, just as, as, as prisoners, I would say, uh, in, these, in these paddocks. Paddocks, which used to be forests, you know? That's another thing about the dairy industry uh, that I think gets brushed over. Uh, when we drive through rural areas, um, and people think, oh, look at these beautiful lush paddocks. Um, but really those now just grasslands uh, used to be incredibly diverse and beautiful forests, with massive, massive trees. You know, Aotearoa used to be covered in trees and forests as far as the eye could see. Um, but when uh, British settlers came to Aotearoa and colonized Aotearoa, we lost a lot of our natural landscapes. Uh, and now it's been turned into paddocks and pasture systems primarily for farming animals uh, and that is now embedded into our society this idea that we're a farming nation uh, people say that this land was like made for uh for farming uh kind of totally erasing the fact that maori were here um that this is a landscape of um of its own um, beautiful unique um type of you know essence it's it's this was not a land that was made um, for Western colonial farming systems. This is a land that uh, has its own uh, right, I suppose, to exist in its natural state, but that's just been completely stripped away. So yeah. Well, I don't um, think there was any land that was designed for Western farming colonial systems. Yes. You know yes, what I mean? Definitely. No, that's um, totally true. Yeah, it has to all be converted. You need to chop down the trees, you need to strip the land bare and then and then mm. basically put the animals onto it. And 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 now mm. you've got a system which is as far from natural as you can possibly imagine. Um, yes, definitely. Okay, so dairy industry, so the, the babies get taken away from their mums. And as far yeah. as I know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, so the, the female babies end up being cows that get milked and the male babies don't live very long. Is that right? Oh yeah, well, okay. So a cow has to have a baby to produce milk. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people think that because the boys don't produce milk, they're sent to slaughter. Um, that is true, but as well, uh, a lot of female calves are also sent to slaughter because uh, a dairy cow in her natural commercial lifespan, I shouldn't say natural there, but in her commercial lifespan, she'll last about five years. And so she, she, she will need to be replaced in five years time uh the amount of babies that they produce even female babies is too much uh for the industry if there's a female calf she's not necessarily put straight into the system she'll only be put into the system uh if she's needed so a lot of 
bobby calves, which are surplus to the industry, uh, are also female calves as well. So a lot of people look at a bobby calf just as a boy within the industry that's no use and so it's killed, but um, bobby calves are also, uh, by large, a lot of female cows as well. Mm. Okay, and then from that point on, the cow is, she is milked every single day for the rest of her life? <sighs> yeah, uh, not every single day. Not every um, single day, okay. My understanding is that they have about a one-month period. So the cow is impregnated. There's a nine-month pregnancy. The baby is taken away. And then there is about a one-month period of, of rest, I suppose you could say. I think this, this one-month period of rest is so that the udders can actually um, recuperate because, you know, putting the cups on to milk the cow can be quite a stressful process, painful. The udders can become quite damaged. And so there's a one-month drying-off period um, where this cow won't be milked. But otherwise, she will be re-impregnated and... and um, yeah, she'll be milked while she is pregnant. And this is what we go over in the documentary, the fact that these animals are not just, not just being milked, they're also then being re-impregnated. And so, um, as I believe it is you, you mentioned in the documentary, the fact that during pregnancy, the, the female hormones are very elevated in the, in the cow system. And so that contributes to the amount of uh, estrogen and other hormones that are in the cow's milk. And so, <sighs> Obviously, this cow's body is working incredibly hard to produce a new fetus, to produce a new cow. All the while, every day, besides that one month, she's being milked, having to walk to the milk shed uh, mm. and to be milked. Uh, it's a very, um, it's a very, uh, what can I say, um, taxing uh, mm. process for these cows. And that's why uh, their natural lifespan is more around 20 years. But within the commercial system, because of this really incredibly draining and taxing process on the, the cow's reproductive system, yeah. um, she's, she's eventually milked dry, essentially, and then sent to the slaughterhouse to be turned into, um, you know, low commodity hamburger mm. mints. Um, and the last stat that I looked at in terms of beef from Aotearoa is that around 50% of beef comes from either spent spent dairy cows or bobby calves or uh, dairy cows who are impregnated with a bit of a, a dairy beef mix. And those cows um, will be taken from the dairy industry uh, and then put into a beef herd. But yeah, about 50% mm. of the beef here in New Zealand is from dairy cattle or the dairy industry. All right. So what you're saying there is that if you consume dairy as they say, for example, a vegetarian, you don't think you're killing any animals, you still are funding the death of 50% of the cows that get killed in the dairy in, in, in the meat industry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was a vegetarian for a really <laughs> so, long yeah, time. Yeah, so people who are vegetarian are paying for those mm. animals to be killed, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, animal agriculture, I, I see it as one system that all weaves in and out of itself in terms of even, even chicken and pork and whatnot. Um, they all have a slight connection into this industry. But yeah, right. absolutely. If, if you are a vegetarian um, and you have this kind of outlook that you've made this decision on the base of ethics because you don't want to be contributing uh, to the death of another individual, which was my position when I was a vegetarian, uh, then unfortunately, yes, you are still contributing to the meat industry because these cows, uh, this cattle milk 
that you're consuming is contributing to this taxing process on the dairy cow. And she is only useful at the end of this process if she's sold to the beef industry to be turned into meat for our human consumption. Fantastic. We did touch a little bit um, a couple of minutes ago about, about the health when we were talking about you know, the cow being pregnant and lactating at the same time. And you mentioned that, yes, I did talk about that in the documentary. You, you, you interviewed quite a few people in the health field around the consequences of um, drinking the milk from another animal, um, and especially a cow. Uh, you know, it was really interesting for me because when um, my wife and I had kids, right, the thought comes to you, like, you know, obviously the kids are drinking the milk from their mum, right? Mm. And the thought of drinking the milk that was produced by my wife was actually kind of weird for me, right? Mm. I found that to be, I didn't really think that was something I'd really want to do. And then that kind of clicked within me. I said, but there was a time where I used to drink the milk from a cow and it just felt so strange, you know, because obviously I was vegan at the time when we had kids, but the fact that I wouldn't even think about that I was drinking the milk from not just one cow, many different cows, that I didn't know the conditions of where that milk was coming from. And here I was feeling weird about drinking the milk of a human, Whereas I used to mm. happily drink the milk of a cow, just the cognitive dissonance that comes with that. Um, yeah. I found that to be very uh, fascinating kind of realization for me in my own life. Um, I don't know yeah. if you've come to any realization since you stopped drinking. The milk uh, of cow either. Um, uh, just the, just the realization of how it's very uh, impressive might be the wrong word, but you know, it is mm. quite impressive how these industries have been able to normalize such a mm. thing because yes, the thought of drinking milk from your neighbor who's yeah. uh, breast, breastfeeding her baby at the moment. She's got a little bit of excess milk mm. and she just doesn't know what to do with it. You know, and maybe she turns it into a cake or something. And then she brings a cake over and says, Hey, this has got my breast milk in it. How, mm. would, how would you like a piece of this cake? It's just a completely <laughs> alien um, thought. Uh, the fact that we have normalized consuming the breast milk of another species uh, really goes to show the strength, the ability of these large corporations to be able to sell us an idea mm. that's really inherently incredibly alien to us. Um, mm. But, you know, time and time again, it's been shown that if there's money to be made through a system or selling a certain product, they'll find a way to do it. Um, and yeah, for years and years, that's what's been going on. And Fonterra, for example, and Dairy NZ and other agricultural bodies from yeah. this country, I would say a master in terms of the world of greenwashing and propaganda and uh, perpetuating these ideas that the consumption of these mm. foods is normal mm. necessary mm. etc cetera, etc cetera. and so yeah it's a it's a it's a fun little thought experiment for people who are still <sighs> consuming milk you know if if it's so strange to consume milk from another human being or even to go back to your mother and breastfeed again you know if that's a strange concept then they and, should start to consider dairy and milk other animals sure. too right so if you if you if you told someone here's a glass of cow's milk and here's a glass of dog's milk mm. they'll easily happily drink the milk from the cow but they would vomit if they got told they accidentally had some milk from a dog right yeah exactly um mm. but yes you're right it's i would say it's a marketing masterclass in fact mm. to be able to convince a population that they need to continue to consume the milk of an of 
of not only you know any other mammal but a diff totally different species of mammal after the time mm. they've weaned as a baby because mammals wean mm. as babies so why do we need to continue to consume milk once we've finished weaning we've never done that um and, yeah. and obviously like you know you talk about the maori population and the fact that milk was only introduced i saw this in the movie you were discussing it mm. you know um and i've had discussions with with maoris about this as well i said you know before the british population entered the country there was no cow's milk and you mm. survived for many many generations and thrived even i'm not saying you survived you you know physical specimens um these people were um so yeah um you know there was never any need for this milk and somehow now you've been as you said brainwashed or conditioned into thinking we need this for our health it's a, it's yeah. a fascinating kind of topic um and just on on health you know obviously we we talked about it when, when you came and interviewed me but what were some of the other things that you picked up from interviewing some of the other experts around dairy and, and health and, and we can touch on that for a little bit yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to go back to the lactose intolerance for Māori mm. and other you know, non-Western European um, ethnicities. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Māori, I would say that this is a myth, but Māori are kind of known for having this kind of warrior gene, you know. Mm. I think it's a complete myth, but there is this notion that, you know, we were incredibly um, strong, powerful um individuals in comparison to other ethnicities and whatnot and so yeah that's often a point that i bring up when speaking to my fano, my fanonga and, and whatnot around the fact that we we're incredible physical specimens uh, we didn't need calcium uh, from cow's milk where did our tupuna get their calcium or other nutrients from you know the fact that we've been sold this myth is uh, yeah like you're saying a complete masterclass because we survived just fine uh, without this product. And now that we are consuming this product, we're seeing the rise of a lot of Western diseases that were previously alien to us, but are now quite normalized, or we're now overrepresented in terms of these negative health statistics associated with dairy consumption. Um, so yeah, uh, that's a big part of what I'm trying to do is to encourage my friends, my whanau, um, that this is a really alien product to us and the fact that it's also then causing incredible environmental harm and causing immense suffering for these animals themselves it creates a very strong case that this is something that we should be analyzing and moving away from absolutely um, in terms of other health um, things that we touched on in the documentary one that i was really um, surprised with um, which came from, uh, I believe it was Mark Craig, uh, was the association between, the strong association between prostate cancer and dairy consumption. And he, in the film, talks about how there is a stronger association with dairy consumption and prostate cancer than there is um, with cigarette smoking and lung cancer. And so for me, that was an incredible thing to learn because my grandfather died of prostate cancer. Uh, and it's incredibly important for us to talk about this because if we don't talk about this and if we don't erase the current myths around the need to consume milk, then we're going to have uh, more of our loved ones suffering from these diseases. Um, and for me, uh, I didn't even get to meet my grandfather. Um, I would have loved to. I heard a lot of amazing things about him. Uh, and I have at least had my father um, 
cut back, he says, on dairy products. I haven't got him to take the full, the full step yet, um, but he's really proud of um, the message that I'm putting out in the film. Um, out my, uh, his father, my grandfather, was raised on a dairy farm, and so, of course, he consumed a lot of dairy products. Uh, and yeah, it's really important that we get this information out there, otherwise we're going to have more people dying of a completely preventable uh, disease. Um, other health-related um, um, topics that we covered in the film that was really interesting for me. Uh, to, be, to be honest, um, there's a lot of things that we couldn't touch on that I wish we did. Um, we had a lot of discussions around the amount of science to include in the film, the amount of things that we were going to drill down into. Um, we didn't want to overwhelm people. So there's actually a lot of things in the film that I wish we did touch on. Um, more than just the consumption of dairy milk and the negative impacts of that, we also looked at um, nitrogen or nitrates in drinking water, which is more from the farming systems uh, rather than dairy consumption themselves. So we put a lot of fertilizer on our pasture-based systems to grow grass. And what we're now starting to see in a lot of these systems is that the amount of fertilizer, the excess fertilizer that we're pumping into these systems is leaching into groundwater. Uh, and a lot of this groundwater, uh, rural towns rely on that water for their, for their actual drinking sources. And the levels of nitrates of fertilizer showing up in these drinking water systems is associated with an increased risk of colorectal cancer and other diseases. Uh, and the last stat that I looked at, it was saying that roughly around 80,000 80, people in New Zealand are being exposed to these increased risks uh, through their drinking water with mm. colorectal cancer. Mm. And so not only is it the consumption of these products themselves, but it's the way that we're producing them, the farming systems and the farming systems effect on our drinking water, which is also having a massive um, health impact on us. Wow, that's fascinating because, you know, everything you hear about is that we need to be eating more grass-fed animals. And, and you know, from, from things that I've seen is that actually it's unsustainable to feed the whole population on grass-fed because mm. we just don't have enough land for it. But what you're telling me is that it's not just, oh, you put some animals on the, on, on the land and then let nature do its thing and they eat whatever grasses can grow. And, you know, we just let nature do what it normally does. It rains and the grass grows and the animals eat it. And no, but what you're telling me is that the farmers are having to um, use a lot of inputs on this land to sustain these animals. And they don't just eat grass. You, you mentioned a bit earlier where they're having to import a lot of feed into the country to feed these animals. So it's not just the grass mm. feed as, as you're kind of made to believe um, in some of yep, the marketing. Absolutely. Um, and, and so the byproducts of these chemicals and fertilizers and, and things like that that they're using on top of the effluent and waste that the animals produce themselves is kind of compounding the problem. Mm. Yeah, there's a big push at the moment for what's called regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. uh, and pasture-based systems, having cows on grass, uh, it's, not the, it's not the same as a regenerative system, but it is an aspect of regenerative farming, having cows mm. on a pasture-based system. And so our pasture-based system here in Aotearoa is, is often equated with regenerative agriculture. Um, but 
in fact, gen, um, regenerative agriculture is a, is a system of farming that has no external inputs. And so mm. we have a synthetic nitrogen fertilizer that we put on the land to produce the grass that we produce. If we didn't use this synthetic fertilizer, there's no way we would be able to have the amount of cows that we do in this country. If we were to truly adopt a regenerative agricultural system, uh, I don't know the exact figures, but it would probably mean around you know a, a 70 to 90% reduction in the farming herd, the cattle herd uh, of the dairy industry. And mm -hmm. so although people like to talk about regenerative agriculture, uh, as a solution, um, they don't really understand that a complete switch to that regenerative model would mean a, an incredibly huge reduction in the amount of animals that we have on the land. Because even if we were to uh, farm all of our cows regeneratively, um, there just isn't enough space. There isn't enough land uh, to do so. Because to do so, um, you can't use fertilizer. You'd have to have the grass grow organically, naturally by itself. Um, and yeah, it just wouldn't be possible in the current system that we have. So if you're, talk, if you're out there talking about regenerative agriculture being the solution uh, and equating our current system with regenerative agriculture, I'd, in, I'd encourage you to look deeply into really what uh, regenerative agriculture is. And you'd have an understanding from there that our current industrialized system is anything but uh, regenerative. Yeah. Okay. And just finally touching on the health impacts, because uh, a lot mm. of our followers will be interested because oh, yes, um in terms of um dairy we're always told you need dairy for strong bones you need the calcium from the dairy for strong bones and you know i think i mentioned uh, i touched on the topic in the film where in terms of the countries that consume the most amount of dairy they have the highest amount of hip fractures um per capita of population so what we're seeing mm. is that the more dairy you have the more weakness there is in the bones so there's a big myth and i think uh the dairy industry actually had to change their messaging on that from from focusing on calcium to protein because there was no association found between the consumption of dairy and strong bones um so they've mm. actually shifted that now they talk about protein in, in milk instead of calcium in milk but that but that age-old kind of is as you said marketing masterclass, right it's so mm. entrenched in our psyche that everyone just believes still that we need to have dairy for our bone health. Um, you know, and I mean, I could go on to that, but I'm, you know, what else do you mm. say about, about that? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. You know, from what I've seen, and I think we cover it in the documentary to an extent, is that there's no clinical evidence showing that increased rates of dietary calcium prevents uh, fractures. Mm. Uh, and so, yes, the dairy industry, because they realize that consumers and governments, I suppose, are getting smarter or at least having to be more accountable to the messages and the science that they're putting out there. And so the dairy industry has shifted their messaging away from uh, milk containing calcium, which is required for strong bones, to instead uh, talking about protein. Uh, and I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that our science starts to move on and to adapt to understand that the protein recommendations that we're now currently getting are also outdated and that we need to realize that this excess amount of protein in our diet, especially yeah. animal-based protein, is causing a lot of negative impacts. Yeah. But yes, the dairy industry went from calcium to protein. Uh, and when we find the issue 
with the amount of protein that we're currently getting, who knows what they'll move on to next. Hmm. Maybe they'll start saying that saturated fat, <laughs> dietary cholesterol. Well, well it's interesting you said that the, the, yeah, it's interesting you said yeah. that the, the dietary recommendations are outdated because they're actually not. Okay. We've actually known the, oh. the amount of protein that we need as a human being since, since the fifties. I think there was a guy by the name of Dr. Rose who did a huge amount of experiments on the amount of protein that we need as humans. Okay. Mm. And what he found was that we only need about 20 to 30 grams of protein a day um, from our food. Okay. About 5% of total calories. And that actually mm. makes complete sense because if you think about it, um, the milk of a human is about 5% protein. Right. And mm -hmm. you're never going to grow faster than you do in that first year of life. So why do we need any more than 5% protein at any other time in our life? In fact, all we do is we get excess protein. And you know what's happening is that instead of relying on that research, because of marketing and money-making, and it's easy to... You know, protein is a very powerful word, protein. You know, it's like, it's mm. like powerful. And, and, and you equate that to muscle because it's in the muscle, you equate that to muscle growth. And now everyone seems to think that protein is this magic kind of fix it all for anything, right? You know, like... The amount of clients that I speak to that have been told you're sick, you need to eat more protein when it's the exact opposite of what you should be doing because protein mm. is hard to, harder to break down and, and digest and things like that. So um, in, in, in terms of the recommendation, so what happened was Dr. Rose found out, okay, 20 to 30 grams of protein. What did the World Health Organization do? They looked at that and said, oh, that's about 5% of total protein. Okay. And following that, they thought, a bit low and so they doubled it <laughs> all right mm. and so today's recommendation of 40 to 60 grams of protein a day is about 10 percent of total calories it's not actually we don't need that much yeah you know and and what other most people don't realize that the body recycles somewhere between 200 and 400 grams of protein every single day just through its own metabolic processes so you actually mm. but without actually putting anything in your mouth you're getting 200 to 400 grams of protein just through your own metabolic process, like cell renewal and repair and all these kind of things that happen. And all we need mm. to do is make sure we get um, enough, which is impossible to do unless you under eat calories. Okay. So if you're eating sufficient calories, it's impossible to not get enough protein because all mm. plants have all the nine essential amino acids. Okay. In varying amounts. So if you eat a variety of different plants, you're going to get all the protein you eat. And you know, someone eating 2000 to 2300 calories a day is easily going to get even on a plant-based diet between 40 and 60 grams of protein a day mm. so it's not like we've actually this is like been known for a long time it's what's happened is people have actually been misguiding the whole science and 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 and, and the whole push to get more protein is is like some kind of I don't really even know where it comes from, but it's just like, it's kind of like the snowball that is compounded over time. And, and now the whole, you know, it's just, it just seems to be the answer to people's problems, which yeah. all it does is it's, cause more problems. Yeah. It's a part of that masterclass as well, I guess, you know, also, also <laughs> yeah. the demonization of carbohydrates as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That plays a massive role. You know, we talk about the benefits of protein and we equate it with, you know, being strong and sexy and whatnot. And mm. it's also coupled with that whole demonization of carbohydrates um yeah. or and you know a lot of people forget that there's sugar in, in cow's milk 
you know, they'll oh, normally yeah. be demonizing uh, sugar and saying it's the worst thing in the world and then telling you to consume milk, completely forgetting that lactose uh, is okay. a sugar as well. Um, but I don't want to say anything bad about uh, carbohydrates, so I won't go down that path because I'm a big <laughs> proponent of uh, carbohydrates. But, but yeah, masterclass. Mm. Yeah, and, and what it does is, what it kind of does is that you, you kind of tell people to focus in on protein and you mm. tell people that carbohydrates are bad for you what are people automatically going to do? They're going to meat. focus on meat and dairy and eat less fruits yeah. and vegetables and starches. Mm. Mm. Okay. Mm. So they're going to be eating the things that make them sick and avoiding the things that are going to keep them healthy and the things that have got fiber and, and antioxidants and, and polyphenols mm. and phytochemicals, you know, all these things that are the body really, really needs. You get told mm. that, that those things are bad and, and, and these things are, it's like a kind of upside down world. Um, that's yeah, exactly. It's something that we're trying our, our most, our, our utmost to, um, to remind people of, you know, that these cows or any animal, um, particularly herbivorous animals, are consuming massive amounts of plant-based food. Uh, and that all of the nutrients within that flesh or within that dairy, those nutrients actually come from those plant-based foods. And so trying our hardest to recommend that people go to the source of that Absolutely. nutrition rather than having it cycled through an animal. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's backwards. Absolutely. Okay. So I think we've got a really good picture of all the issues that exist in, in the current system, you know, from, from the, the fact that the animals get used and abused, the fact that, um, that the environment gets neglected, the fact that our health mm. actually, it does the opposite of what they, they kind of say that it does. Um, so one thing I really liked about the documentary when I watched it was that you provide solutions, not only for us as the consumer, but also for the farmers themselves. And I think that's a really important discussion to have because, you know, as, as someone who is a vegan and a plant-based eater, I don't want to see farmers go out of work or kind of lose their money, but I also don't want them to be, uh, caught up in this this industry that is harming not only not only themselves and, and the population but the environment as well so i really loved how you 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 kind of drill down on what people can do not only from a consumer level but an industry level and and changes that we can make and um you know the kind of crops we can grow so let's touch on that um you yep. know i guess i guess i wasn't a huge fan i'll be honest with you i wasn't a huge fan of the kind of the lab meat kind of side of things, but I can understand from an environmental perspective how that would be beneficial. Um, but, you know, there's, there's still so many really positive things about the solutions um, that were presented mm. in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to say as well, we cover many things about the issues within the film, but there are so many other things that we could have talked about in the film that we just didn't have time to in terms of mm. pack it into an hour and a half. So mm. uh, if someone watches the film, I encourage them to dig a bit deeper because there's just so many issues that we just don't have time to get into. But mm. uh, yeah, uh, in terms of precision fermentation, um, I'm also not a big fan of um, the, this new lab-based um, aspect of food production that's coming through. The mm. reason why we included it in the film is because uh, this is going to happen. You know, yeah. it is going to happen, and farmers, particularly, and governments um, like like ours here in Aotearoa, need mm. to prepare for this disruption because it is going mm. to be the most seismic shift 
the most seismic change in food production systems of our of our past few generations and so oh. we need to be preparing for that even even if it's not yeah. a uh, yeah. a product that we ourselves want to consume um yeah. it needs to be preparation needs to be set up so that our farmers have a sustainable career to transition into because mm. it's going to cause an incredible amount of disruption to a sector that's all already uh suffering through a range of issues whether it's um their own mental health struggles farm for farmers they're really suffering you know they're, they're seen as the villain by society mm, um yeah. for polluting our for polluting our waterways for causing a bigger impact on the environment um on climate change and often i would say industry leaders are hiding behind our kiwi farmers our family mm -hmm. farmers as a kind of yep. human shield you know yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so we need to find solutions for our farmers because i would argue that a farmer is as to blame as a consumer, is as to blame as anyone else. You know, they're born into these systems. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm of the opinion. I'm of the opinion that it's it's a consumer-led process. So, if you're not demanding it, then they're not going to produce mm. it, right? Mm. And the farmer gets caught up in the middle of that you know absolutely at, at some point we all thought that milk was something that we needed to consume so we so we demanded it right and so if you demand it then someone's going to produce it right? it's the same as you know the slaughterhouses and how they kill animals and that kind of stuff it's yes they can be seen as the bad guys but in a way they're the hitman for our demand mm. right yeah it's so, a good way of looking at it yeah um so yeah but obviously you know, as you can say, farmers aren't doing, enjoying the kind of view that they're portrayed as, as well as the mm. workers. And I wouldn't say, I mean, obviously some people really might, might enjoy it, but, um, you know, it's, it's hard. Mm. What I find first, <clears throat> what I find for slaughterhouse workers is they're normally proud of the fact that they're able to provide for their family. They're proud of the fact that they have sustained income um mm, that they're mm. that they have a livelihood at all uh and usually when you drill down and you have conversations with people from that work in freezing works and slaughterhouses is that they would be happier or as as happy as they are in any other line of work um mm. slaughterhouses are normally situated in low socioeconomic areas where there mm. are no alternatives so mm. what people need to remember is that we're not just advocating for alternative careers for our farmers. We're also advocating for alternative careers for people that um, only have a slaughterhouse as their options, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, getting back to solutions. Yes. Um, you know, here in Aotearoa, we're incredibly lucky mm -hmm. for our, our very fertile soil, the amount of rainfall and the temperate climate that we have is makes us a perfect place for growing a, a wide diversity of, of crops and mm. horticulture and whatnot. Mm. Um, it's just the fact that we have an incredibly embedded system where a few benefit from the system. Mm. Uh, and so shifting our system away is very difficult because there are many incumbents who are embedded in the status quo. And so for me, it's really about educating the public to create more social pressure um, for when legislation comes about that we 
uh, encourage um, legislation that will move us away from these industrial mm. uh, forms of agriculture, agriculture into uh, more sustainable food production. Uh, because it's there, it's there. Mm. We have the ability mm. uh, and the know-how, the innovative skills um, to really thrive in mm. alternative forms of production. I mean, um, but the, could in, be as simple the infrastructure as, needs to be built. I mean, it could be as simple as, you know, shifting from growing, I mean, breeding cows and producing milk from them to growing crops and you know creating plant milks oat milks mm. or hemp seed milks or you know other so many so many different products that could be so could be made and and the environment will be so much better off you know you're instead of emitting emissions you're absorbing them you know i mean mm. talk about some of the different types of crops that we can farm that we could actually replace a dairy farm with a different type of um, product yeah, definitely. Um, so in the film, we follow uh, three different uh, farming situations that have either diversified or switched uh, completely. Uh, pumpkin seeds was mm. found to be more profitable than um, dairy farming for one wow. individual. Wow. Um, there are farmers uh, experimenting with hemp crops. Um, there are farmers transitioning from dairy production to producing organic uh, cruciferous vegetables. Um, one thing though that I can share, unfortunately, two of the farmers that we followed in the film, they have since, uh, for lack of a better word, fallen over. Their, their pathways have failed. And I would say it's because of this lack of support in terms of political support, in terms of having infrastructure for these farmers, because these farmers have kind of been trailblazers um, and they've completely lacked in support from, from the industry. Uh, so we did follow some uh, who, uh, unfortunately their stories have ended in a bit of a negative way in terms of the real world, um, but they, they did uh, have a lot of promise in terms mm. of the models that they were creating. Models that we should look to in terms of that kind of setting a precedence um, for moving towards that model in the future it's just the fact that we need to build that infrastructure mm. we need to stay politically engaged so that when legislation comes through to support these systems the public has the know-how has the knowledge mm. to support them yeah. because at the moment you know the dairy industry is seen as like a hero we want to keep pushing dairy it's all we know but luckily we've had some trailblazers who have been able to come up some models that will hopefully mm. inspire mm. people for the future yeah interesting thing i learned around um around government interventions and 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 you know investing in technology and, and new industries and things like that you know the us you know part of the reason why they they got to be as powerful as they are is because the government invested in new technologies okay um and and mm. they don't do that as much anymore okay so like the internet was a huge and government initiative invested in a people who were wanting to push this technology into the marketplace okay um and so one of the things that i think government should be part of is you know when they think about where they spend their money okay a lot of the time um they're focused on specific types of people and making sure that they're okay which is important but there should be a focus on finding or uh, giving an incentive for people to try the new things you know what i mean so yeah different grants and, and 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 you know just for people who 
because it's, it's really difficult to put everything that you've worked on like if you look at my situation right to start up high carb health as an organization i had to put my life on hold for three to four years right if the government had a uh, a situation where they would you know try and promote people who wanted to try and start a new industry or start new businesses and things like that i'm sure they do in a certain way but it's not very well known right mm. um and and really imagine the types of diversity that we could create in the in in, in the country or in the world and the different types of industries that would pop up the jobs that would be created all of that kind of thing could really be quite a a, a beautiful way and i guess you know you got to weigh that in with how much you're going to lose because some people might start up and not succeed but i think that's a that's an opportunity cost that's worth taking an opportunity and, and, cost that's worth taking and, differently and if and if the farmers are given that option imagine imagine how creative mm. these people can be and what they can mm. deliver for the country it'd just be outstanding yeah yeah there's an example of it happening in ireland they have a mm -hmm. quite similar dairy uh, population, I guess you could say, industry as we do here in Aotearoa, um, mm. where the government has set aside a fund for test farms uh, to help uh, experimental uh, farms um, to build models to understand how a dairy system can um, diversify transition. and transition to a horticultural system. Mm. And so uh, if, if people support the messaging that we have in our film, we really encourage them to go to our website. We've got a take action page. Um, there are some petitions on there where we're asking to have a similar model to what's been produced in Ireland to produce mm -hmm. these experimental uh, farms for transitioning our own farmers. Because for farmers themselves, it doesn't matter how much science and conversation is going on in terms of um, how good plants are. Mm -hmm. They need models that they can see physically, you know, in the flesh, um, for that example to be there for them to have mm. the inspiration like this is the blueprint so this is the blueprint. Yeah, they need like, the blueprint you know somebody has done th there's been like three or four different options for me i can choose which way i want to take mm. this uh, and there's an industry there that's willing to support me if i do choose that yeah. option as well exactly yeah. that's what we need the blueprint for change yeah and i think i think this i think your film is going to be a massive conversation starter i think it already has been in new zealand um you know i'm looking forward to seeing more as you you know as you, as you spread this film wider around the country and in the world um yeah. in closing i guess you know obviously really appreciate your time i think you've just presented the film at the new zealand film festival what was the reaction what did people you know what were people kind of telling you once they watched the watched um, the production ah I had a lot of people in tears coming up to me, which is really nice. You know, and I, mm. people who have been waiting for this type of documentary to be made, um, mm -hmm. people who are inspired by the prospects of um, this really creating change. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I've been really, really encouraged in terms of um, the reaction from people and from people in the film as well. That was kind of like, phew, as soon as I heard from people who were in the film that they were happy with, you know, the outcome, um, the finished product, and how they're portrayed. Um, that was really nice as well. But yeah, really encouraging reception from people who have seen the film so far. Uh, lots of people who have been messaging us saying that they really want to do their best to promote the film once it's publicly available. 
Uh, and yeah, we'll be needing as many people as we can to help push it out there. Uh, we're really hoping to get a response from Fonterra, Dairy and Z. We're going to be doing as much as we can, community screenings, whatever it takes to get the message out there uh, and to hopefully start conversations or continue these conversations and start bringing some common sense um, mm. to the conversations around dairy farming in Aotearoa because it's definitely lacking at the moment. Absolutely, man. And, and full credit to you and Amy as well. I, I, we haven't really mentioned mm, her. Yes. Um, Big thank you to Amy, our amazing director. Yeah, you guys done a fantastic job. And, um, you know, I, I think, I think yeah, full credit to putting years, I think it's been years of work mm. um, to get to where you are. I mean, I remember doing the interview for it, it must have been 2017 2018 yeah years yeah. yeah a lot of, a lot of yeah. work has gone into this and i think a lot, a lot of work, work still to come and it shows you know the, the well, quality of the production is is really nice so um for the people who are watching this go and watch the film milk because you know all the links will be down there um just to where you can view it and um it's it's an eye-opener for sure i mean I knew some of the things, you know, I'm involved, involved in the film, but I learned so much by watching it um, mm -hmm. about what's going on. And it really opened my eyes. And, and for someone who's already involved in, in that community to have my eyes opened again or even more. Um, mm -hmm. So I would just say thank you. Um, a big, big thank you um, for putting in that effort, both you and Amy. So, um, and everyone else no involved worries, as well, cool. you know, everyone else involved. Yeah. Yeah. I just have to say as well, a big thank you to everyone involved in this film. It's not just me mm. and Amy. We had a, mm. you know, it was a, it was a small team uh, mm -hmm. in terms of those who are directly there putting the film together. But so many experts contributed to this film. And yeah, just a massive mihi, a massive thank you to all of them for, for them giving us their time. Huge, huge co-popper. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you to everyone who's uh, joined us here for the interview on the podcast or watching on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, um, please give this video a, a like, a big thumbs up and um, go and support uh, Chris, Amy and the rest of the team from Milked and, and what they're doing because it's, it's much, much needed. Uh, if you've got any questions about uh, what we've talked about, there's a comment section down below. So feel free to ask away and we'll do our best to answer as many of those questions as we can. Um, if you haven't subscribed to our High Carb Health channel, please hit the subscribe button and the little bell notification icon, which will give you updates of all our recent uploads. And once again, a big thank you uh, for joining us here today. Big thank you to you, Chris, for taking the time to speak with me. Um, and for everyone who's watching, make sure you eat plants and lots of them. You take care. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> thank you.